Welcome and welcome back to Power Surge. I'm Alex Epstein of the Center for Industrial Progress, coming to you from Orange County, California, joined by Stefan Hedden, coming to us from, I can never remember the city in Germany. Stefan, welcome. Hello from Germany. What part of Germany again? It's uh, the state of Northern Westphalia, and it's currently it's Oberhausen in the Ruhr area. All right, keep us posted. All right, everyone, well, it's been a while, so no excuses, no promises, but we are here today. And we have uh, two stories, unfortunately, neither of them inspiring, but I think both of them important. So we'll start out, Stefan, um, what is going on at the Pentagon and how does that relate to fossil fuels? Uh, yeah, the Pentagon has uh, released another report on Monday um, saying that the impacts of climate change uh, will have significant implications for the operations. Um, for example, rising sea levels will impact military installations, um, you know, social havoc that climate change will uh, cause in other countries will lead to more aid operations and uh, maybe more wars and so on. And uh, the Pentagon, you know, in previous reports has stated something similar. And there's, of course, an uh, incentive for the military to, you know, create threats like climate change, um, new threats like alleged man-made climate change to increase its um, budget, I would say. Um, yeah. Well, and to, and to be compliant with the administration that is in charge yeah. of it and decides uh, its employees. Yeah, I, I, here's what I find disturbing about this. One wants to think of the military as a very precise institution, both in its thinking and in its action. And so if, if you know, the military announced tomorrow, well, we're going to, you know, we want to be uh, prepared for, you know, next year we're going to devote billions of dollars and we want to be prepared for, you know, the wrath of the rain gods or something you would think, wow, that's not, not too happy with our military's way of thinking about things. And you might say, well, climate change is, is different. Well, I think in many ways it isn't. And, and in part, just self-evidently on the face of it, it's such an empty term because it, it, you know, it doesn't differentiate even between man-made and non-man-made. It doesn't specify impact. It doesn't specify where. It doesn't specify... Um, you know, what, what can be done about it. Uh, and just to give an example, which I talk about in the moral case for fossil fuels, if you look at something like sea levels, Stefan mentioned rising sea levels. Well, but sea levels around the world are not rising or falling. They're both uh, because they depend on all sorts of local factors. So we have a, a graph in the book that shows that in many places in the book, sea levels are going way down. So how does the Pentagon factor that? So we want the Pentagon to do is think very carefully and precisely about these issues. Uh, but instead, it, it, I mean, who knows what it's doing internally, but its external declaration is simply pandering to this very broad oversimplification of what can be expected in terms of the weather 
um, and you know other aspects of climate in the name of, of just you know pandering to this broad idea that we're, we're screwing up uh, the climate and it's it's so what you would want either way is what you want is is precision so to know okay what exactly is the impact of fossil fuels on climate and do we know and how how well do we know and if we know very little you have to say we know very little but if you also know that f using fossil fuels is vital for dealing with any of these climate related problems um which it is i mean if you have you know if sea levels go up what you're going to need a lot of energy uh to deal with that if you know you need to move you need a lot of energy to deal with that and the, you know this occurs whether man does anything or not these kinds of phenomena so um just an example of how instead of engaging in scientific thinking with you know precise magnitude and precise context they're engaging in uh dogmatic thinking where they're obviously just trying to incorporate this very vague and unuseful thing and and you know part of that is that they're very vague on what the state of the evidence is or they're saying oh well we all know that there's climate change again what what the hell are you talking about and then what is is your evidence because you know, the main thing you would look for is do we have do the people fearing let's say catastrophic climate impact from fossil fuels do they have a demonstrable ability to um you know has it been demonstrated that those predictions are accurate and and the opposite it's been demonstrated those predictions are inaccurate time after time after time so it's a you know a very dubious undertaking certainly not not anything that should be regarded uh, as as certain so it's we're going to talk about this in the next story but uh, you know dogma is is the enemy of science you know but it is you know it's the friend of power lusters and dictators and all sorts of other bad forces in the world. Uh, Stefan, any more thoughts? Uh, yeah, there are a couple of things that come to mind. For example, uh, the type of missions uh, the military will engage in the future are predominantly shaped by the politics. The administration sets the agenda where it sends its troops and you know that doesn't necessarily relate directly to something very slowly moving like climate change. You literally cannot observe climate change as a human being. You know, the local factors far dominate uh, circumstances. And during operations, this is far more far more relevant than any slow-moving 30-year increment of tiny changes locally. You know, when you see militaries training, they train in desert conditions and train in polar conditions and train in grassland and woods and so on because they have to by nature, they have to adapt to different circumstances all the time. And this is not uh, something new. This is something that must be part of the very long-term planning and not some suddenly, you know, there's wild weather. No, wild weather is, you know, weather, not climate. Anytime there can be a storm in Florida, and the military must be prepared for that kind of stuff. And it's not like there's this huge change. Even if the IPCC... Uh, high human impact predictions would come true. Uh, that is not something the military shouldn't be, you know, adapted to anyways.
you know, even cooling events, it should be adapted to. So there's really no no reason to treat this like a sudden alarming event. These are slow, slowly moving objects, and the military should be well aware that it has to do long-term predictions in all directions to be prepared for everything. Yeah, act, yeah, they act like it's this, this brand like, news flash. Military will have to deal with volatile and unpredictable weather. Yeah, climate disruption. It's a term I think the environmentalists like to use. Yeah, but it, well, I, I don't. I, I take that term less innocently. I take climate disruption as believing that climate is inherently purposeful, and that we have this this uh, nurturing climate that loves us and has its own has its own infallible path. And then any little CO two we put in the atmosphere, we're disrupting that, and we should be terrified of what's going to happen when we you know, disrupt our fragile mother climate. Um, I don't think it's just climate. Uh, are you taking it as climate disrupting our lives? Um, I don't actually know. Like, I mean, climate disruption, I think, aims at commingling weather and climate so people are confused and don't actually know you know, what is what and what is caused by what. And, and so it's, I think it's a term that is used to create misunderstanding. Well, that's, yeah, that's definitely true of all of them. But my, my sense of the uh, evolution, as it were, is that it goes from global warming, which somewhat is followable, uh, although very misleading in the sense of you think of everything as warming and it's not clear at all in the magnitude versus, okay, it's warming and cooling all over the place, but if you average them out, it's a tiny bit warmer um, in no place in particular. Uh, that, but that's better than climate change, which is naming a constant um, of nature, and then which allows you to put anything bad in, you know, when it's not warming, that makes it Climate change is always true, in effect. But then people kind of point that out, so then they say, okay, well, yeah, it's not exactly climate change, it's climate disruption. That is, we are interfering with the natural climate or disrupting it. That's, that's what I, I take it as, anyway. Um, all right, other story we have. So there is, and, and uh, Stefan and I talk about this stuff almost every day, so I, I feel a little bit bad about not, not recording it. But one thing that's been coming up lately is just that every day there's some story about how, well, you know, really it turns out that fossil fuels are way more expensive than solar, than wind, if you take into account the full cost. So, Stefan, what's, what's the latest iteration of this? Yeah, there's a new report by the European Union, and... Uh it analyzes the total cost of uh, all kinds of energy sources, including onshore wind, solar, nuclear, coal, and so on. And um, they say that onshore wind is actually the cheapest form of energy production. Uh, if you take into account something like air quality, human toxicity, and climate change, 
And of course, that is your tat trick of, uh, of quote unquote analysis by uh, government entities where you just, you know, put fictional cost on something you don't like and, um, put some fictional benefit on something that you do like. So you have an, Justification for subsidizing the one you like, and for you know taxing or banning the one you don't like. But it's and not. It's not a. It's not a subsidy. In fact, you're you're making money by spending yeah, but, all this money. But, but the evil market forces, of course, don't reflect that naturally. So you have to either subsidize one or punish the other. So right, well, that's why we need environmentalists in office. Exactly. To yeah. To save us money. So let's just look at this from a couple of perspectives. So let's take, you know, in, in Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, um, the, near the beginning of the book, I talk about the cases of, of China and India, where they've used massively more energy you know, to improve lives and extend life expectancy by six plus years over the past several decades. And you know, this is demonstrably connected to, as I mentioned, massive increases in energy. Is energy is you know, that's the machine food that allows them to to have you know machine powered lives that allows them to do way more work, be mo way more productive, live longer, and healthier. So, and I point out, well, not by coincidence, they use mostly fossil fuel energy for this, including overwhelmingly coal. Now, why is it that they didn't use onshore wind? Or wait, is it offshore wind? No, onshore wind. Um, why didn't they use onshore wind? You might say, well, the technology has evolved so much. It's evolved some, but it's, that's been, that technology's been around for a while. Um, or even now, why aren't they using, I mean, they're using some onshore wind, but they're not using it as baseload at all. They're using it as, as you know, an ancillary thing. And we could talk about the reasons why they're using that, but certainly they're using a very small amount relative to the amount of coal, even additional coal and oil, yeah, coal and oil in particular, that they're using. Now, why? Because according to this study, they could just become, they're doing all of this damage to themselves by using uh, coal and oil, and people would say, oh yeah, for sure, it's it's smoggy all over the place, case closed. But if we look at the data of, no, if we look overall, is there are their lives getting better or worse as they use these cheap fossil fuels, the lives are getting way, way better, which means that there's not these massive, quote-unquote, external factors, because the nature of the situation is if you look at how things actually add up, they're much, much uh, better off. Now, if they, let us imagine they tried to use onshore wind. Well, like every other country in the world, they would be unable to because it's an unreliable source of energy. And thus, it's, thus you know, to try to make that your main source of energy would be to try to you know, build some elaborate set of contraptions where you are trying to gather enough wind so that you can store it for even when the wind doesn't blow. And then you have to deal with the fact that the storage facilities would be so massive and resource intensive that it makes no sense at all to do, which is why no country in the world is, is primarily powered by solar and wind or even close. So in reality, 
the choice would be China can increase its prosperity using fossil fuels or starve trying to use wind. And in a sense, everyone knows this, and yet they publish this kind of BS. Where if people really took it seriously, they would, you know, people would starve and die. So this is just a completely BS academic exercise, which the, the genesis of it is that it goes to the issue of dogma and, and what, what Stefan said about uh, arbitrarily assigning costs. In effect, they've just said, look, if you use fossil fuels, you're going to hell. And that's our cost, right? So that's that's the that that's the external cost. So on the so it's on the one hand, yes, you might be able to afford energy, and that means you can have a refrigerator, you can have working hospitals and pharmaceutical factories and all this stuff. Yes, um, but on the other hand, you're going to have eternal damnation, and so we're going to put a high price on a high cost in that. So it turns out, if you use the wind, yeah, you're not really going to get energy, but at least you're not going to hell. Like they're just putting this infinitely negative um, cost on something where there's no evidence whatsoever that there's any huge negative cost on that order. Um, and you know, to the extent there is, there's risks, you can deal with those through, through proper laws, not by arbitrarily saying, oh, this is costing $10 trillion. Um, so in reality, one form of generating energy is efficient which means that it's using relatively few resources to generate a lot of value, which means people can afford the energy. On the other hand, the other technology is woefully inefficient, which means you use a lot of resources to generate relatively little energy, which means uh, you know, very few people can afford it. So that's, that's the reality, but this dogma, you know, this, this religious dogma of, like, we're going to hell with it, it really has that level of precision. It just... They just assign this infinite negative to every instance of falsehoods. Again, like the Pentagon, this is the opposite of bad thinking. Bad thinking is big picture thinking. You want to know precisely magnitudes of benefits uh, and risks and, and what are the benef magnitudes of the benefits and risks of the alternatives. And with that in mind, I would say uh, check out the new website for Moral Case for Fossil Fuels because a lot of the focus of the book is on the methodology by which we think about these issues, because I think if we, and I think, I think it's, it's not so hard to agree on what the right method is for deciding these issues, but if we make it explicit and we make it conscious, then we're all much more likely to use it. And then I think that you're, you become very surprised by where, where, where you land up in terms of your, your uh, belief about the truth. Um, yeah, so moral case for fossil fuels.com. And also if you're a student, um, for I think at least for the at least the rest of the month, if you go to fossilfuels.co, you can actually get a free copy of the book, which is I think pretty cool. So fossilfuels.co, totally free, even free shipping. Um, so check that out, Stefan. Any final thoughts? Yeah, well, everyone has just to remember that you know just because someone puts out some number that sounds precise it doesn't mean he has any clue about the matter like if you see, every layman can see that the ipcc reports the stern report the ipcc assessment report 5 and you know the risky business report by uh, tom steyer and his friends and so on they all come to different numbers for impact of climate change and the reason is that not only is it purely speculative that 
human influence will worsen the climate by X percent. It is also purely speculative what kind of impact, even if that was true, it would have on the economy in 50 years. There's no, nobody can predict that. It's absolute nonsense to make, to put a number on this. And if you come up with like precise numbers that just, you know, 105 euros per megawatt hour in wind power, you know, that's why not 104.7? Like that's, that's absurd pseudo precision. That's, it sounds scientific, but it's not. It's pure speculation. And that's what everyone can see, you know, if you just keep an open mind and see the big picture. All right. Well, active mind, because you don't you don't want to be open yeah. to dogma. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> open for All right. Well, Stefan, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, audience, friends, listening. If if you like this, um, you know, bug us some more to keep doing it. Again, I think my, my promises in this respect over the past couple of months are not worth too much, so I'm not going to make another one. But uh, it's fun doing. So, yeah, hopefully we'll have have some more. I've, I've come to not like the word hopefully. So uh, I'm looking forward to the next one. I'll put it that way. All right. Bye to everyone.